all those European countries, the US, Canada, all those countries who dictate how we should handle our wildlife in Africa, those countries are the reason rhino are going to go extinct. And they are going to go extinct because those countries are not going to take the tough decision to vote in favor of what, how we know we can save the species. And that'll be on the tombstone. Yeah, that'll be on the tombstone. Death by politicians. Death by politicians. In other parts of the world exactly. that weren't Africa. Yeah, death by Western politicians. How do the two groups look, Alex? Uh, the top one, uh, before the adjusting, about probably two MOA, and then the second one, after we adjusted, it's, a, it's down to roughly probably one MOA almost. So it did, uh, did tighten up the group quite a bit. That's quite remarkable, actually. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that looks good. So I think we'll keep going and see, see how close we can get them. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and this is the first episode of a series of four from the front lines. This is a, a series brought to you by Rocky Talkie Radios, where I speak to people working every day on the front lines of conservation from around the world. The first two episodes, or at least the first two episodes, are going to be in Africa, because that's actually where I am right now. I'm currently sitting under a tree, hiding from the midday sun in South Africa, having uh, just been filming in Namibia uh, and Zimbabwe before going on to another project here. And the first conversation is with a really good friend of mine, Alex Olofsson. Uh, I've just finished shooting a documentary about his family, and particularly about his mom. Uh, Annette also, who you're going to hear from in a couple of weeks' time in the second installment of this series, along with John Banovich and Alex is also on that, on that one as well. But I'll tell you more about that in a couple of weeks' time. This podcast, I sat with Alex on the back of his Land Cruiser to record this podcast in a dry riverbed, not very far from his house. And we talked about conservation very generally, but also specifically in, in Africa, and we talked at great length about rhino conservation and rhino horn trade and what the future for rhinos are in the world. It is, it's a difficult conversation, it's an intriguing conversation, and it, beyond anything else is a really important one. I would imagine as people are listening to this, you're probably going to have your own opinions and ideas, and I would love to hear from you off the back of this episode. So as I said, this series is brought to you by Rocky Talkie Radios. Uh, they came to me a couple of weeks ago and said they wanted to support the show, support the work that I've been doing on the podcast. And so I came up with this idea of delivering the series from the front lines. It's exactly the kind of conversations that I love to have. You can get 10% off a set of Rocky Talkie radios if you go to rockytalkie.com forward slash into the wilderness, the name of this podcast. I've had them out here and what you have just heard in the intro was actually Alex and myself doing some range testing just prior to us starting uh, the Rhino Conservation Project, which you're going to hear about in this interview. Uh, they have been brilliantly compact. 
uh, brilliantly rugged. I, I've broken a lot of gear on this trip already, but I haven't broken these radios. I'm one camera down, one uh, mic set down, a lapel mic down, a screen down, and I'm sure there's two other things that are broken already in the first three weeks of being here. But the radios are still going strong. Uh, they're made by a team uh, in Denver, a small team in Denver. They only weigh eight ounces. They have a range of one to five miles in the mountains and over 25 miles line of sight. They're cold resistant. The battery will last up to five days, even down to minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit. And very importantly for me, they can be charged via USB. If you want to find out more about Rocky Talkie radios, head over to rockytalkie.com and get your 10% off at rockytalkie.com forward slash into the wilderness. It has been a really manic couple of weeks out here while I've been filming, uh, along with lots of things going wrong with equipment. Um, I've been bouncing around, but boy, oh boy, do I have some amazing content to share with you all very soon. And I, I can't wait to get it out there. Lots of filming, lots of recording for the podcast. The Upland series that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago uh, is being put together right now. It's probably the most intensive podcast series I've ever done for more than 20 interviews that you're going to be hearing over six episodes covering some incredibly important topics at home in the UK. Uh, but that's all for me for now in the intro, other than to say thank you very much to my Patreon supporters who help make this show possible um, every two weeks or two to three weeks, depending on when I have Wi-Fi to upload these things. Um, I've had to travel to an office half an hour away from where I'm actually staying to get this podcast out today because I've basically had no internet connection for the last three weeks. Uh, but the top tier Patreon supporters this week include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting, James Marchington, the guys at South Asia Stalking, Dick Ekstrom and Mark Zabrowski and Leslie Cumming. Thank you so much for your support and thank you so much to every single Patreon supporter who helps me record the kind of shows that I want to do. And that is a lorry reversing somewhere in the distance and a perfect cue for me to let you jump into this conversation with Alex Olofsson. Okay, done. Good. We are recording. We have beer. We have a dog on the back of your Land Cruiser. And it's away. Last go. time we sat and recorded was 2019, I think. Yeah, it was the first time you were here. Yeah. Uh, a lot has happened in four years. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it's just been four years. It feels so much longer. It's uh... It's gone by in a flash. It has gone by in a flash. And now we're sitting here in a dry riverbed uh, on the back of your Land Cruiser, which is literally my favorite place to record a podcast, the back of a Land The last podcast I recorded in the back of a Land Cruiser, I actually just released on the podcast this last week. And it was sitting with um, a conservation biologist, Willem, in Mozambique at Mark Ardain's place. Oh, wow. Yeah, we sat on the back of the cruiser, Tyler was there, and we had the, you know, all the cheetahs that we were, re yeah. we were releasing? They were all in the in the BOMAs waiting oh, wow. to go out. Wow, that sounds so like now, a pretty epic place to, to back do a podcast. On the back of a, a cruiser in Namibia, so cheers, Alex. <laughs> cheers, good, uh, good having you back in Namibia. <laughs> We've done quite a lot of things since that first podcast yeah it's been we've moved in a whirlwind elf and i'm just talking about the stuff that i've been a part of with you or you and your mom uh elephants to congo yeah elephants to congo. um we watched the 
podcast listeners will know because uh, I've reminded them about that I've been working on this film forever now. <laughs> but um, Alex and his family watched the first cut of that like two nights ago. Yeah. So when this podcast goes out, we should be within about two months of it actually being finished, which is exciting. So that documents elephant relocation to Congo, which was a pretty epic, epic effort. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a, yeah, it was a crazy trip. <laughs> yeah, what, just for recount that a little bit um, with regard to having elephants here, how they got here in the first place. Um, and why you ended up having to make that decision back then in 2019. Um, yeah, so, so my dad uh, reintroduced elephants onto our property early 80s, and pretty much we just got to the point where we, we had so many that we needed to take down numbers, um, you know, just so that we're not uh, overstocking our property. And we're very fortunate with, uh, with this opportunity to come up to move elephants to the Congo to restock a new park. And, and um, you know, they basically took a piece of land and were rewilding it. And we felt very fortunate to have, um, you know, a place to take our elephants um, back into the parts of Africa that uh, where elephants used to be. And they, they basically just got pushed out by, by human encroachment. People and poaching and all the rest of it. Yeah. But um, here, here specifically, though, I mean, it's, you, there were no elephants here when your dad and your mom first set this place up. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of an amazing success story, exactly. right, of the elephants yeah. being brought back here in the early days, in the, in the 80s, I think. Yeah, yeah, in the early 80s. And then, um, you know, and just, and they, they, a lot of the elephants that came in here originally were actually um, orphans from culling operations back then. Um, well, so what was what was the reason for that? Why was that happening? Uh, there was a, there were areas like the, the Atosha Park, um, which were overpopulated. That's a big national park. Big national park, national park. Um, and they were overpopulated, and they were actually culling them to keep the numbers down. So you know, so they they didn't have too many there to overgraze the park. Um, but then with culling operations, you know, every now and then things don't go as planned and you, you have orphans coming out um, of, of those operations. And so some of those orphans are the ones that my dad then introduced here. Wow. To, to create a herd. To create a herd, to create a new herd. And That's not easy though, is it? No. Because no, we, a, I think most people understand that uh, the structure of elephant herds is complicated. It is, it is. And, and um, you know, until they finally form a coherent family group it takes some time and then you know we we had some ups and downs with young bulls that would go after rhinos and kill rhinos and um you know so it takes some time for for the the dominant ones to, to get to the age where they can take care of their younger ones and then actually teach the young animals how how to function okay um so it, it was uh it's a, a lot of time that went into that. And then, you know, when you get to the point where you can then start restocking other areas. And, um, you know, so of course, when we restock other areas, we make sure to take family groups and take adult animals. Because that was the challenge with this relocation, right? Was yeah. that it was actually a family structure that you were family trying to take. Family structure, yeah. So you're not, you want to take adult animals with their calves and, um, you, you know, the, the whole structure. And uh, of course, that makes it a lot, a lot harder than if you were just to take, you know, younger animals. Um, and yeah, that was, that was a, a crazy trip of uh, six days, four days on a boat. And you were with on that, <laughs> on that whole trip. <laughs> it was a long trip. Um, I won't give too many spoilers away because uh, it's all going to be in the film. But yeah, it was the logistics feat of pulling something like that off 
is quite incredible. But talk a little bit more about the impact of elephants on your area here and the kind of what kind of size we're we're talking about because you had this these new elephant herds built up from the 80s you now have was it 45 or 50 elephants 2019 yeah yeah so i think 2019 before that capture we had 55 uh, and then we took a bunch out and we're about back up we have more calves now so we're back up to about 46 now okay so you're back kind of almost yeah, where you started so, but you've so, had rain since then because yeah, one, one yeah. of the issues that i was beginning to understand when i first started spending time here and documenting stuff was that that was year seven in 2019 i think of just horrendous drought. It was, it was, it was yeah, the worst drought in a hundred years, and um, it was seven years straight where it just it, we just didn't get any decent rains. Um, and in 2019, by the end of the drought, we were feeding we we're feeding our animals alfalfa just to keep them alive. And we were feeding seven tons of alfalfa a day, and we, we kept that going for eight months straight. Um, that sounds expensive. Very expensive. Very, very expensive. Um, and, uh, and you know, you, you just need to try and reduce elephant or, well, all your species numbers. So we did live capture on so many species. Protecting um, habitat. Yeah, That's exactly. Your focus. Exactly. Um, and then, of course, elephants are part of that. Um, so, and they're also now, quite, I mean, I've seen, I've seen this in Botswana, in northern Botswana, and I saw, I saw it here back then. And you were pointing it out to me was they are quite destructive, particularly yeah. when you're it's already suffering. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they they go after the big trees first. So you'll see in an area where it's overpopulated with elephant, all the big trees are gone. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they'll if they can't push a big tree over, they'll de they'll actually debark it and eat the bark, mm -hmm. and then the tree just dies, it dries out and dies anyway. Um, so uh, you want to keep your elephant numbers, you, you definitely don't want to be overpopulated with elephant, otherwise all of your big trees go and then after that they just start working down on other vegetation. The thing is with elephants, when they're overpopulated um, in an area, then they destroy the vegetation for all the other animals as well. Okay, so you have this like you know? cascading knock-on effect yeah, exactly. to all the other things you're trying to keep alive. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you take a, a riverine area, and they they take out all the all the trees and all the the vegetation there like exactly where we're sitting right now exactly yeah. then you lose all the habitat for your small animals like your diker and your nyala um you know animals that you wouldn't think would be affected by elephants at all but the elephants the way they just you know take out vegetation everything down the chain is affected by them um, and so that's that's why it's 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 uh, very important to manage your elephant numbers to take care of all the other species on the property as well. What what other management were you undertaking at that time to just get to the next year? Um, so of course we were feeding a lot, and then the animals that we could take off by live capture we were catching. Um, but being a drought, there there was some species that nobody really wanted, um, so we were culling certain species as well just to get the numbers just down. Them into meat. Yeah, yeah, meat yeah. Um, before you know, having them die of starvation because of the drought, we'd rather cull them and then process all the meat and make sure that they actually get used for something. So then you can get some economic return on, which is probably just going into buying alpha alpha to feed all the rest of the game. Yeah. Exactly. It was costing us back then with what the exchange rate was back then. We were running at about $2,000 a day just in food. Wow. Um, that adds up real quick. Yeah. yeah. But I think 
the year after, literally the year after that, you had some rain, or yeah. you had, it started yeah. to get better. Yeah. yeah, we had in 2020, we, we had, so the end of 2019 going into 2020, which is our rainy season, we actually had some decent rain again. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then COVID hit. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. So, so we one problem to the next. So we went from seven years of drought being extremely expensive, just trying to keep everything alive, going into a year where there was absolutely nothing coming in because of COVID. Um, but it, it was quite a lot more relaxing having grazing and not having to worry about the animals and not Even having didn't have income from tourism. from tourism. Yeah. So. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, and, uh, and then after that, uh, 21, we actually had okay rains as well. So uh, it's, it's, it's been, been okay since, since 2019. How, how do the, the economics of conservation in a reserve like this work for, for you guys? How do you operate? So when in a reserve like this where everything's privately owned, so in, in Namibia they call this freehold land, which is basically commercially available land that anybody can buy and then commercially own. And for something to, like this to operate, you need to make money to keep it going, you know, especially in years of drought where you need to feed your animals um, and where you're restocking animals, where you're adding land, where you have to put up fences to, you know, to, to keep your boundaries safe. So you need, the land needs to generate money um, for us to keep these animals on the land. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's something where people always kind of have a, you know, they, they, as soon as you start talking about money and conservation, people get scared or, or, or offended sometimes if you're talking to, you know, um, full on green conservationists. But in Africa, what people don't realize is, you know, people always have this idealistic view of Africa being wide open spaces and plains and everything's just roaming around freely. But there are a billion or 1.5 billion people living in Africa. They need to live somewhere. And a lot of the land that was open, you know, wide open spaces back a few hundred years ago, that's been taken over by people with cattle, with agriculture. So it isn't, you don't really have this idealistic Africa anymore of just having game everywhere. But if people can make a living off of having game on their property, then they'll have game on their property. Whereas if they can't make a living off of it, what reason is there for them to even keep wild animals on their property? And the best example of this is Kenya. So Kenya banned hunting and pretty much the private ownership of game in 1977. And since then, they have lost 85% of their wildlife. So the whole country of Kenya has 15 roan antelope. Which we, we just drove past one yeah. just not on the way here. Um, I mean, just on our property, we have more than 10 times as many roan antelope as the whole country of Kenya. It's mind-blowing. Um, the whole country of Kenya has 51 sable. That means we have four times as many sable on one property here, on our property, than the whole country of Kenya. And yet, when you mention Kenya, everybody sees this golden child of Africa. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, this kind of mecca destination for seeing wildlife exactly, on the continent. Exactly. But yet, Kenya only has wildlife in their parks and their protected areas. Because for local communities, there's absolutely no reason to keep wild animals on their property because they can't derive an income off of them. Mm -hmm. So all those animals get replaced with cattle and agriculture. Whereas in Namibia, where you have private ownership of, of game um, and where the government is very pro-sustainable uh, utilization, which is actually enshrined in our constitution, 
um, and you have legal hunting, 80% of wildlife in Namibia is on private land because you can generate an income of it. And it's, it's very simple. The saying in Africa is, if it pays, it stays. Mm -hmm. So if you can generate an income off of wildlife, people will keep it and look after them. And that's the biggest problem right now we have in Africa with rhino poaching. Because rhinos are just worth nothing alive anymore. Um, rhinos cost so much to keep alive because of all the anti-poaching efforts you need to go in to keep them alive. It's colossal. It's, it's crazy. And then on the black market, rhino horn is worth, you know, if, if you're looking at kilos about uh, in Vietnam on the black market, 60,000 US dollars per kilogram. Um, and so if you're looking at a big rhino horn, you're looking at anything between 300,000 and 400,000 US per horn. You know, and the animal, if you were to buy like buy one from a neighboring farm, you, what would have that you were cost you? Buy a live breeding cow, which is typically your most expensive animal. Mm -hmm. You could buy one for about ten thousand US. So the, the numbers don't make any sense. No. So the dead animal is worth forty times what the live animal is. And, and that's and, why and, there's rhino poaching yeah, in Africa. That's why. And and what people don't realize is that this has been going on for years. In, in 1950, there was 100,000 black rhino. So, and now we have 5,000. So in a space of 70 years, we've lost 95,000 black rhino. It's just, it's hard to compute these yeah. numbers. I mean, 95,000 rhino that have just disappeared. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's, uh, uh, the scariest part to me is that so many people out there don't even know about this. They don't know that rhino are going to be extinct in 15 years from now. You know, you, 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 you mention rhino going extinct and they look at you, you know, like you, like you have egg on your face, you know, it's, it's like, what do you mean? Like, well, we've lost 95,000 rhino. What do you think is going to happen to the next 5,000? Mm. Um, so it's uh, so, so, that's probably the biggest problem, and for us right now, the the biggest uh, um, between so so the the biggest uh, the biggest challenges for us here being in Namibia and a dry country is always droughts and, and working through droughts. And another one of the biggest challenges we have now is just keeping rhino safe and keeping them alive. You've seen have you seen an escalation in the last couple of years of issues in poaching around rhinos? I think it's it's been fairly. I feel like it's been fairly well documented, but you're reminding me that like I, I wa walk in this world all the time with these people, and so I hear this stuff, I get WhatsApp messages. So I, I know what's going on. I have inside reports out of Kruger, which would make you cry. Yeah. Um, but maybe people don't really know, but in South Africa in particular, it's been horrendous yeah, it yeah. in the last, yeah. I don't know, at least decade, probably yeah. longer. Yeah. Um, are you starting to see that bleed over the border here now? Yeah. Yeah. So probably because so, they've run out of rhino in South Africa. Yeah. Have they? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So in 2020, uh, there was a decrease in poaching. But I mean, you know, and, and then you have people who who hailing this as a decrease in rhino poaching. But well, the, the whole world closed down in 2020. It's very difficult to get about. Everything yeah. went down. I mean, your shipping lanes closed. Your air, you, you know, air freight closed. Uh, everything stopped. So everything went down in 2020. Um, but then as soon as the world opened back up, um, everything started going up, including poaching. So last year was actually the worst year for poaching in Namibia in recorded history. Um, 
And a lot of that is because it's becoming harder to poach rhino in South Africa just because the numbers have gone down so much. Wow. I mean, if you look at Kruger Park, according to their numbers in 2010, they had close to 11,000 rhino. Officially now they're saying numbers of around 3,000, which is already a loss of 7,000 rhino. And I've heard some much, and much if you, different if unofficial you, numbers. Unofficially, if you talk to the people who actually did the counts, yeah. who physically did the counts, they're talking about 700 rhino left. So, I mean, if there's 700 rhino left, then that's loss of 10,000 rhino. And, you know, when, when, we, when we try and solve this problem about poaching, people are always, well, you need better anti-poaching efforts. Well, if you look at Kruger Park, they probably have the best anti-poaching team in the world. Yeah. I mean, they have four full-time helicopters. They have dogs. They have Belgian, Belgian Malinois that parachute out of the helicopters to get on poachers' tracks and track them down. Um, it's a constant firefight. I mean, it's, it's, it's a military operation in Kruger Park. And they still haven't managed. And they have lost 10,000 rhinos in 10 years. Um, so that is, it's not the solution. And also in the long term, even if, even if that was, even if that was able to hold a population static or allow them to increase a bit, that means that forever into eternity, you have to have a military, pretty much a military, highly trained military presence to protect rhinos. Yeah. That yeah. doesn't work because eventually the money and, runs out. Like yeah. how do they, how does that get paid for? It's expensive. Exactly. And, and the thing is, is, is you know, <clears throat> what are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to keep isolated populations of rhino safe and be and that be what we have for the future? Or are we trying to safeguard rhino so we can grow the population? Are we trying to get back to the point where we can have a hundred thousand black rhino again? Hopefully. You know. So if we are gonna solely try and keep rhino safe by anti poaching efforts, if we're barely I mean, if if we're having a hard time keeping five thousand black rhino safe yeah. with all the anti-poaching efforts we can. What is it going to be like? What operation do we need to, to launch to try and keep 100,000 rhino safe? Hmm. You know, so if this is our goal to try and grow the populations and get back to what our historic populations were 70 years ago. We need a new plan. We need a new plan. The, the, uh, yeah, well, I suppose we can get into that. Maybe before we, we get into this, this idea of a new plan and, 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 and talk in details about something which is quite controversial, I suppose. Um, we're just on the cusp now of a big operation that's happening on your... I'm assuming we can talk about that. Yeah. yeah. A big operation that's about to happen on your place over the next couple of weeks, yeah. or probably month, I suppose. Yeah. And I'm going to be filming some of that. Yeah. I, I'm guessing a lot of that was facilitated by the fact you're really increasingly worried about the the... The safety of the rhinos that yeah. you have on your reserve. Yeah, I mean, ideally, if if you didn't worry about the safety of your rhinos, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to touch them. You wouldn't you'd, mess. you wouldn't mess with them. You'd you'd you know leave them be. But because because should I turn that radio off? Uh, maybe we should. Yeah. <laughs> everybody's getting the updates from your <laughs> what everybody's doing on your place. They feel like they're here though. You know what's going to happen is someone's going to desperately need you. Oh, I suppose they'll still be able to get you on your channel, will they? Uh, no. Well, you just didn't turn it off. Okay. They can they can do without you for forty five minutes. Um, yeah. So so I mean, ideally, you if you have wild animals ranging in the wild, you don't want to 
to work with them or you don't want to um, dart them. You, you just want to leave them be. But unfortunately, because of rhino poaching being so bad, um, you know, a lot of people are dehorning their rhino. Mm -hmm. So pretty much those rhino get darted every two years. Horn gets cut off. Um, because it continually grows. It continually grows. So the, the horn, once you dehorn a rhino, it grows back with about a kilogram a year. Um, it's kind of an insane growth rate. It is, it is. Um, especially when you think, you know, when it gets longer, it doesn't really seem like it's growing much, but they wear it down mm. so much. But when you cut it down close to the base, it grows about a kilogram a year, so about eight to 10 centimeters a year, which is a lot of, a lot of horn. Yeah. Um, but um, to try and keep them safe, so we're putting tracking devices in the horn. Uh, so you basically dart the rhino, drill a hole into the horn. And so the horn, the rhino horn is made of carotene. So it's just like your fingernail. Um, and just like when you're trimming your fingernails, if you cut a rhino's horn off, in the right place that is, or if you drill a hole into it, it, it doesn't hurt the animal at all. It's, yeah, it's, it's like, like cutting your fingernails. Yeah, it's like cutting your fingernails. Um, so we're putting, uh, drilling big holes in the horn and then putting tracking devices in the horn. Um, and then you basically epoxy them in um, just to keeping better, a better eye on the rhinos, um, you know, and it's, So you'll have like an active map yeah, and be able to see where map. your rhinos are at any yeah, point yeah. in time. And the big thing is you'll see if there isn't any movement. So if mm -hmm. a rhino isn't moving for a certain period of time, then you get, in, you know, get an alert and then, um, So just, so. you can be way more efficient with yeah. how you use your resources yeah. that you have to keep them safe. Yeah. Sounds uh, like a lot of work. A lot of work, a lot of work and a lot of money that goes into that. And we got, uh, we got, uh, um, you know, very, very fortunate to have gotten a big grant um, from the Shikara Safari Club. Um, and then also with a lot of help from the Wildscapes Foundation um, to be able to make this project uh, a reality. Otherwise, we, we would have never been able to make it a reality because it's, it's a lot of money that goes into there and, you know, a lot of... Uh, um, you need a professional vet for probably going to be four to five week program. You know all the all the flying hours to dart the animals, mm. all gonna, the equipment. You're going to be in the air a lot in the next yeah. five weeks. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, and then parallel to that, you still have to keep your anti poaching team going. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking at growing our anti poaching team again and. It's uh, it's just a constant, nonstop, um, and even with all that, you're just waiting for the day when you get that call on the radio that there's a rhino carcass. Hopefully, that never comes. But yeah, you're always waiting for it, anticipating it. Touch wood, but uh, it's it's with the amount of money in rhino horn, it's inevitable that it's going to come at some point. Yeah, it's just a question of time. So. You have a view on what a potential solution could be. I think it's probably safe to say that you, you painted a pretty good picture of, of the efforts that are going on across the continent, some places more than others, others where they have the resources like Kruger Park, the resources that you go plow into every day here to keep your rhinos safe. Um, but that's not a long-term solution. What could be a long-term solution? In, in in my mind, we've tried almost everything else. Yeah. So so pretty much when it comes to you know keeping rhinos safe, there's two two schools of thought on on how to do it. Or or traditionally, um, you know, people are like, well, you need to do better anti-poaching to keep them alive. Well, we've tried a lot of that, and a yeah. lot of there's a lot of anti-poaching efforts have gone into a lot of big reserves. But pretty much, 
the only places where they've they've where anti-poaching has kept it, is, it hasn't kept poaching out totally but has kept the biggest populations alive was in very small areas where rhinos have basically been kept pretty much in captivity yeah. um you know so um so you ask yourself is that what we want do we is want to keep of yeah, yeah to be kept in captivity just so we yeah. can keep them alive and even then i mean you've you have zoos in europe where rhino have been poached for their horn oh, I that, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and i mean this is in a zoo with permanent security mm. with with cctv cameras and rhino get poached i think there have actually been three zoos in europe that have had rhino poaching incidents um, you know, so there's probably so, less security in some of those zoos than there is yeah. in some places, but yeah, that's crazy that that's happened. Yeah. Um, so anti-poaching is is the one way to try and keep rhinos alive. The other, or or to try and stop rhino poaching, um, the other thing that people say is, well, you need to educate the end user. Okay, so we're prim primarily talking about Asia here. Primarily Asia, yeah. So we're a little bit in the Middle East and primarily Asia. So, so Vietnam and China are the biggest markets, and well. It's it's you know a lot of money's gone into that as well. A lot of uh, there there have been very big very big campaigns to try and keep um, or to try and educate the end user. You know that rhino horn has no medicinal value. Um, I mean Jackie Chan, Yao Ming, they they had a huge campaign years ago and it did big billboard. I remember seeing the pictures yeah. of big billboards in Shanghai. And exactly. All the major places. Yeah, and and TV ads and and it didn't change a thing. It did not affect rhino poaching at all. Some people actually argue that it pushed it up. Yeah. So, well, because it raised awareness of it, I suppose, or as a as a product. Yeah, so, so the media makes rhino horn out to be medicinal, or to be used for medicinal purposes, but it's actually a very big status symbol because it's so hard to come by and so expensive. People with a lot of money will buy rhino horn and show off with it to their friends. So it's like the Ferrari parked in your driveway. Exactly, <laughs> and so. Some people um, argue that because of this whole campaign with, with Jackie Chan and Yao Ming, that, you know, people were like, oh, that's really, you're really not allowed to have that. I'm going to show my friends I can have that. Because hmm. it's know, like so. power and status. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So what they'll do is like a rich businessman will have a rhino horn sitting on his table. And when he has a, a client come in, he'll actually carve off a little piece and then he'll either burn it as incense or throw it in their tea or, wow. you know, something like that. Uh, so so it, it has a, so it's deeply yeah, ingrained. They're, they're these special grinding um, plates, um, which is which is basically like a rasp where you could put a rhino horn in and then you turn the plate and you have like little shavings fall through. You put the whole, the whole horn? Yeah, you basically sit the horn down and you okay. like you grind the base off. And, and this, the, I mean, this dates back so long, and th this is where the cultural aspect comes in. Mm. I mean, there's there's Chinese scripts and texts depicting the use of Chinese or a rhino horn as libation bowls, twenty five hundred years ago. So we're talking about culture that goes back lo longer, <laughs> longer, longer than some other countries' histories yeah. have existed. Exactly. I mean, I mean, this is this is this is before Christ that they were using rhino horn. So, okay, it's easy to say you need to educate the end user, but we're looking at a culture that's 2,500, 3,000 years old, yeah. 
Um, and we're looking at a, a group of people that are cut off from the rest of the world. You know, they don't have the same access. They, they, they don't have here. access to the internet we do. They 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 don't see the same news we do. And actually, there have been you know people have gone into Vietnam into the Golden Triangle and they they asked the, the the end users, "What do you think about all the rhino poaching?" And they said, "Well, why do you kill them? What we want to, we just want the horn. Why do you kill the animals?" Fascinating. And, and there, there was a big study done, um, I, I can share it with you, um, where they went in uh, all the way again to the end users and, and they did a whole economic study on this. And they found that horn coming off of live rhino and wild rhino is actually more valuable than other horn. People would pay more for that. Well, that kind of changes the game a little, doesn't yeah. it? And so, and so if you're looking at the Chinese middle class, the Chinese middle class is about 350 million people, just the middle class with money to spend. Mm. That's the same. So that's the whole population the of the whole, US. The whole population of the US is the Chinese middle class. <laughs> oh. And so now, you know, people are saying, well, you need to educate the end user. Try and get 350 million people to, that are cut off from the rest of the world, uh, try and get a message to them. Mm. I mean, put, put 10 people in a room and put a controversial subject out there and see if you can get all of 10 people to agree on that, you know? I mean, it's, it's and, and with it being part of their culture for so long, if you were go, to go to a Christian and tell them you can't be a Christian anymore because of, you know, whatever reason, do you think that they're gonna change their-, their really work like that. No. So the logistically educating the end user is impossible right now or at the very least it's a very very long game yeah yeah it's 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 not a next year thing no. or an even a 10 year time no. thing and and we're looking in 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 reality now we're looking at 10 to 15 years before we've lost all wild rhino okay so you, we don't have the time to we change the, end the, the user yeah. viewpoint on yeah it. so in 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 my opinion and, and, and most people's opinion who work with Rhino on the ground, the only way that we're gonna save the species is by legalizing the trade in horn. Okay. So you legalize the trade in horn and you take control of the trade because right now there is trade. There is so much trade in Rhino horn, but it's all illegal. It's illegal and we have absolutely no control over it. We have no control over which animals um, get poached and, and which horn gets used. And, you know, so we've been looking, if you take the this, this stats over the last 70 years, you've, it's, it's typically around a thousand animals, a thousand rhinos a year that we lose just because of their horn. It's coming down a little bit now just because rhino numbers have been depleted. It's hard to find them. Yeah. Um, and yet we sit with so much storage of rhino horn. From all the dehorning that's been happening from all for the years and yeah, years. From all the dehorning and then also just natural mortalities yeah. and then horn that has been confiscated off of poachers. So if you just take all the horn in Southern Africa that's sitting in storage, estimates are it's about 40 tons of horn, which is the same as 8,000 rhinos. So even if we don't talk about dehorning rhino and selling that horn but if we just use horn that are that that's sitting in stockpiles you know horn from from rhino that are already dead and if we're looking at a demand of a thousand horns a year we're looking at eight years that we can sustain the the, the market just by using you know horn from from stockpiles 
What about the argument that by facilitating a legal market, it could encourage more people to partake in it? So that's the main argument that gets brought up. That was that was the argument with the ivory trade, which I should point out is very different because to take the ivory from an elephant, you have to kill an elephant. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> this is your dog, dog. talking about Belgian Malinois. <laughs> this one, this one had a, a bit of a run-in with a warthog the other day, so he's feeling well. He was feeling sorry for himself. Now he doesn't seem to care. <laughs> yeah. So what what about that aspect of it? So. Um, uh, <laughs> Again, there's, there's two schools of thought on that. So the, the, the one group says, as soon as you legalize something, it loses its value mm -hmm. because it's easier to come by um, and you don't have to go through the whole illegal supply chain. Yeah. Um, Which partly hikes up the cost of it. Yeah. So, so one, one, one school of thought is that it'll actually drop the price to about 10,000 US per kilo. Okay. And then you have the other side, which says, as soon as it becomes legal, everybody's going to want to use it and the demand's going to go up for it. Uh, so if we look at the end user, the end user actually really doesn't even know what's going on on this side, because at the, at, at the moment, they don't even know about poaching. Yeah. So if it's legal here or illegal on our side, it, it, it isn't really going to affect them. But to me, it doesn't really matter if the price goes down or goes up. Mm -hmm. the, point of this whole exercise is to save rhino not to generate money off of the horn so if it's legalized and the horn and the price of horn goes down and it becomes it becomes you know it comes to the point where it's not worth it for poachers to to poach rhino anymore we're saving rhino because that's the goal right it that's needs to be so easy to access at a, at a price point where why on earth would you go and poach a rhino because yeah. there's risk involved, like a life and death risk, because you might run into an anti-poaching unit. And it takes a lot of logistics to hide a horn and get it back out to Asia. And then on the other side, if you have the price going up of horn, well, then you're generating so much more income off of the live animal to keep it alive. And you can put all that back into your anti-poaching efforts. Mm -hmm. So. The biggest thing, what, what we want to achieve is you want the live animal to be worth more than the dead animal. Yep. So it has to be that way. Yeah. Otherwise, why would, it, why would they exist? Exactly. So right now we're sitting at a point where the dead rhino is worth 40 times more than the live rhino. Some big accounting companies have, have done these calculations and they've said if rhino horn gets legalized, and you take the lifespan of a rhino and the amount of horn that can be generated off of a rhino over its lifespan, the live value of a rhino will go up to about 2 million US. Wow, that'll so make it one of the most expensive if, animals on the planet. Yeah, so if you have an animal that, if you keep it alive, is worth 2 million US, I mean, everybody's gonna make sure that animal stays alive. <clears throat> yeah. And so the big problem now with, with rhino is that for local communities in Africa and for people living on the ground, there is absolutely no value to rhino. In fact, there's a negative value, right? Because you have to, to keep it alive, you have to spend money. So for people owning rhino, there's a negative value to rhino. For people living outside of reserves and, and, and you know, living in informal settlements in Africa, there is absolutely no purpose to rhino. So 
I know people that have gone into informal settlements in South Africa and, you know, filmed and asked them, done interviews and like, what do you think about rhino poaching? And they said, well, we don't care about rhino, shoot them all. Hmm. Because to them, they, they live outside of a reserve and millions and millions of dollars is being put into anti-poaching and drones and, um, you know, helicopters and all this. And yet and they're hungry. They're sit there. They live a few miles outside the reserve and they're struggling to put food on their tables for their family. So what reason is there? So they don't, they don't even care about the poaching or the value of the horn. They just see the rhino as a rich man's pet. Interesting. So, and until we can get people on the ground to benefit from keeping rhino alive, there's no reason that local communities, um, and, and I mean, if you look at Africa, if you look at Namibia, we're sitting with a unemployment rate of close to 40%. So if you can offer a guy two years of his salary um, or two years worth of salary to go and poach a rhino and give you the horn. Of course he's going to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so, so the only way we're going to, one, keep the species from going extinct and two, grow the numbers back to what we used to have mm -hmm. is to make it valuable for people living in Africa. So if you take a local community, typically you have three to five families living on about 10,000 acres and they are basically just subsistence farming. So they have some cattle and they do a little bit of, um, they have a few crops and they basically do this just to feed themselves every year. Yeah. So they are not really generating an income at all. At most they're just feeding themselves every year. And then you have years of drought come in and, and you know, they need government bailouts. Um, but if you take 10,000 acres, you can very, very easily give those three to five families 10 rhinos to look after. And say for argument's sake, um, if the trade is legalized and the price falls down to 10,000 US dollars a kilo of rhino horn, 10 rhinos, you generate 10 kilos every two, well, 20 kilos every two years. So for argument's sake, 10 kilos a year, that's 100,000 US a year that those families are generating. That's a lot of money. And that is, and they can keep their cattle and they mm. can keep their crops. 10 rhinos and 10,000 acres is not even an impact on the vegetation. And then suddenly you have a middle, uh, a middle class. Yeah. And then you are getting the people living on the ground, generating an income and being able to feed their families by keeping these animals alive. You know, and so you, typically when, when people ask you this, or, or when you talk about legalizing trade, um, you know, they say, well, it's an endangered species. We can't be doing experiments with this. Mm. We're but, doing it anyway because we're to keep them alive yeah. or trying to keep them alive by cutting the horns off. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then you go and look at so many other species. I mean, when was the last time that you heard of a crocodile being poached? It doesn't happen anymore. So in the 1800s, crocodiles were being poached. I mean, crocodiles were, were, they, they, they were poached by the thousands before their skins. Yeah. And then people started farming crocodiles. And now it's not... Yeah, we just had a croc farm the yeah. other day. And, and I mean, nobody, you would not even go through the effort of wanting to poach a crocodile because it's, 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 it's a hassle for the little bit of money you can make off of mm. a crocodile skin. Because there's so many crocodile farms worldwide um, with the legal trade in, in crocodile skin and meat. And it's, it's not just crocodiles. I mean, um, 
you know, you, you look at ostriches. Vicuña. Yeah, Vicuña. Um, ostriches in the 1700s, people were poaching ostriches. I did not know. We even have ostriches in Scotland. There's yeah. some ostrich farms in Scotland. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, for ostrich skin, for their feathers, they were poaching ostriches. Oh, back in the big hat days. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and then people started farming ostriches. And we had a bunch of ostrich farms here in Namibia. They closed down because there's no value to ostrich anymore. Because you have ostrich farms worldwide. There's so much generation of ostrich skin and, and, and meat and feathers that it's nobody would even think so of you're poaching. never worried about anybody really jumping over your fence and poaching, poaching an ostrich, an ostrich. <laughs> no not at all um i didn't know that they had been poached so heavily yeah. historically and you know if we look at crocodiles if we look at ostriches these are animals that you actually need to kill the animal to consume what you want off of the animal mm -hmm. you need the skin whereas with rhino you keep it alive by just trimming the horn and you know, it's, it's, it's when, you, when you talk about legalizing the trade and people say, well, it's so sad that you're going to be dehorning them just to, to put the horn on the market. Well, we're dehorning them anyway now to try and keep them alive. And we're failing at keeping them alive. Mm -hmm. And the whole point is that we want to try and sustain the market. So at the market at the moment is demanding at most a thousand horns a year. If the demand goes up, say it demands 2000 horns a year. We, we want to dehorn just enough rhino to sustain the market and leave all the other rhinos in the wide open spaces be. So if we can grow our numbers back to the tens of thousands and hopefully one day to the hundreds of thousands, if this should happen, if we can legalize the trade, we'd still only be dehorning two to 4,000 rhino a year. We wouldn't be touching the other rhinos. But I really do think that as a status symbol, I think it'd lose a lot of its pull. If it's if it's like, legal to would, come why by, why would you care? Yeah, if it's if it's legal to come by and somebody can f get on a plane, fly over, and go to a shop and buy a piece of rhino horn and fly back, uh, what's the what's the big? Mm. You, you know, it's not hard to come by, and if the if the price goes down, it's it's not the the status value anymore. So, um, so where's the barrier to this uh, like happening? Because I I distinctly remember being in the Eastern Cape with another friend of mine uh, when they opened up the rhino horn trade inside South Africa. Yeah. But it, I think it's, it's only ever been inside the it's, country. It's only right? always been domestic trade. Yeah. Um, so interesting in South Africa, the domestic trade used to be open. And then in 2010, they banned the domestic, or the, the trade in horn uh, in rhino horn domestically in South Africa. And then about four years ago, they reopened it up again. Um, but then, but this is just domestic trade. So you get countries where the domestic trade of horn is legal, but the international trade of horn is not legal. And that's legal. where the demand is. And that's where the demand is. Um, so the international trade of, well, pretty much any endangered species, uh, the, the, the animal itself or the product is governed by CITES. Yep. Um, so CITES is the convention on the international trade of endangered species. And, um, there are 183 countries who are signatories to CITES, and then the European European Union gets a vote as well. So you have 184 votes at CITES. So whenever a country who's a signatory to CITES wants to trade something internationally, they or change something to the convention, then they can put in an application to CITES, which then gets heard at the CITES Conference of the Parties, which is every three years. COP, as a lot of people know. Yeah. Yeah. 
So COP19, I believe, was the last one we just had, which was in November in Panama. Um, and unfortunately, a bunch of African countries have actually given up on the legal trade ever happening. So the only country to put in an application for legal trade was Eswatini, which used to be which, Swaziland. Which Mick Riley is a big um, manager. He's a sort of a yeah. driving force behind exactly. that. Yeah, I talked to him about it. So they put in an application for the legalizing or legalization of international trade in rhino horn from Eswatini. And 85% of the countries who voted, voted against it. Do you have to, do they, I wonder if they have to justify why, or it's just a vote? It's just a vote. Um, so unfortunately, as we sit now, you know, um, people on the ground who work with trying to keep Rhino alive every day, who, you know, shed their blood, sweat, and tears trying to keep these animals alive have absolutely no say in the future of yeah. rhinos because the African governments are pro-trade because we've seen it work. We've seen the private ownership of, of animals work in Namibia and South Africa. We've seen sable numbers go from 30,000 to 300,000 because there was a market for them. Um, you know, we've seen it with crocodiles, we've seen it with ostriches and yet when we we come to CITES with a solution to save the species, we're outvoted by all the other countries who don't even have a rhino. Now there's, of the 183 countries who are signatories to CITES, 11 of those countries have rhino. And only about three of those countries actually have big metapopulations. Um, and yet all these other countries get a say into what happens to our rhino. And unfortunately, when it comes to CITES and people voting at CITES, it's political. It's politicians sitting there. You have the ministers of environment from each country sitting there voting. You have the delegates from US Fish and Wildlife sitting there voting. And, and it, it, it's sad that they don't even take the time to educate themselves on the problems of a topic before they go and vote on that topic. Um, so so they, they have this thing at CITES when it comes to votes on, on, on um, controversial subjects or, or like the trade in rhino horn, <clears throat> where I think they call it the PP, the um, precautionary principle, where okay. you would take the precautionary vote. Mm -hmm. or, and it's so sad that people would sit by and see a species literally slowly go extinct without just having the guts or the fortitude to make a hard decision and say, we'll vote and support you. You've seen with the, Afro, with the Northern white rhino. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people probably have seen that. The last, uh, was it two now? There was three. There, there was three. Yeah. So there was two females and one bull and um, the bull died. The bull's name was Sudan. So the Northern white rhino is a subspecies of white rhino. And for all intensive purposes, they're extinct. Functionally extinct. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's two females left of that species. And for years and years, you had the decline in the species and nobody noticed, nobody, you know, it was never in the news, nothing. Um, and well, they're extinct. 
Mm-hmm. And the same thing's gonna gonna happen to the other rhinos. Populations just keep going down and down and down. Politicians sit at CITES and take the easy vote because they're they're too. Do you think they're they're worried about how that? Do you think it comes down to how the the fact that they are worried how whatever whatever country they are from, how it will reflect on them when they go home? Yeah, because the countries politicians take the easy way out. Um, they go for what the NGOs and the animal rights groups and the Greenies push for. So when you look at, 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 uh, at the wildlife economy, you look at consumptive utilization and non-consumptive utilization. So as we were talking about the crocodiles and the ostriches where you have to kill the animal to consume something off of that animal. With the rhino, we also have consumptive utilization. The difference is the rhino stays alive. Non-consumptive is when you just take a picture of an animal and you don't touch it or you don't interact with it. Yeah. And because the trade in horn of rhino falls under consumptive utilization, all the animal rights groups and all the, the anti-groups are against it. And unfortunately, as we see with so many other things in this world, in politics, politicians will go for what the voters that gives them least backlash. Hmm. And so, because we're talking about consumptive utilization of a rhino, and because all the the NGOs are against it, um, the, they push the politicians to to vote the other way. If we don't see international trade opening up in rhino horn, do you see a future for rhinos no. in the world? No. We'll have a few isolated pockets of. <clears throat> rhinos kept in in zoos and in, in, in fenced off areas in captivity with you know, amazing amount of, of security around them. So it'll be a spectacle. Yeah. yeah. It'll be a really sad day. Yeah. That's that's where we're headed. That's just just two days ago there was a rhino poaching north of us. That's it's you know, people ask me, what's, what's the hope for rhinos? And there is no hope. And unfortunately, we know legalizing the trade can save the species, but it won't happen because we're governed by politicians and not conservationists. Um, and politicians won't, won't make a change. So rhinos are going to be extinct in 15 years from now. I hope you're wrong, but it doesn't, it, it seems like the trajectory that we're on, you might very well be right. It's, it's, it's a sad message and it's grim, but I think for too long, we've been clinging on to the little bit of hope and think, well, you know, maybe if we do a little more anti-poaching, we can save them. Maybe, maybe at some point, you know, people will, will learn that it's, it's, it's not, you know, that it's not medicine or it's, it's not worth to say to simple. We, we run, we don't have the time. We don't there have the, the luxury of time. We don't, we don't have the time anymore. Hmm. And unfortunately, sitting on the ground in Africa, looking after rhino, being governed by international countries, you know, thoughts on topics, we, we, we still do what we can. You know, I, I, I tell people there is no hope, they're going extinct. And they ask me, but why do you keep fighting then? So why, why do you plant roses in your garden every summer? Is because you, they're beautiful, even though they wilt in winter. 
you know, we, we love these animals and we love seeing them and we want to keep them alive. So we'll we'll try what we can until you know we've given the last little bit of energy we have. But yet we need to face reality, and the reality is this is not going to change. And the reality is that in fifteen years from now there's not going to be wild rhino. And the reality is that we we can't blame the poacher with people just trying to feed their families. You can't blame somebody for trying to feed their family. And can you really blame the end user? Can you really blame somebody who's where this, the use of rhino has been part of their culture for 3,000 years and they don't know any better? They don't see the poaching. It's not in the news. They're cut off from the internet. Can you really blame them? In my mind, you can't blame them because they don't know any better. And yet we have this tool to stop poaching and to increase rhino numbers. So who do we blame for the extension of the species? All those European countries, the US, Canada, all those countries who dictate how we should handle our wildlife in Africa, those countries are the reason rhino are going to go extinct. And they are going to go extinct because those countries are not going to take the tough decision to vote in favor of what how we know we can save the species. And that'll be on the tombstone. Yeah, that'll be on the tombstone. Death by politicians. Death by politicians. In other parts of the world exactly. that weren't Africa. Yeah, death by Western politicians. Mm. And I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of politicians who do not agree with me at all. And, well, if you don't agree with me, come here and show me different. Mm. And if you're a politician, listen to me and you don't agree with me, I know you won't come here because you cannot prove me different. Yeah. And if you do think you can, accept the challenge. Yeah. Come here and show us on the ground how you think you can save Rhino. And if you can't, then listen to us. Listen to the people on the ground. It's a powerful message. I don't know how we corral all the politicians who vote in CITES and drag them to Namibia. Maybe that's the answer, if that's possible. <laughs> We need to get AI to run politics and make better decisions. <laughs> <laughs> Your place here, and this is kind of linked to when you're talking about consumptive utilization, you run this place so that it stands on its own two feet. We touched on this just a little bit right at the beginning of the conversation before we went on this very deep conversation about rhinos. Um, Explain how those mechanisms work here. The thing that blew my mind when I was here a few weeks ago was when I was sitting in your butchery. And we were, I was asking you about the amount of protein that comes through here yeah. as a sustainable, wild offtake yeah. off this land. You have, so many, you have so many pillars that basically make this place work and pay for the wildlife to exist in this landscape. Exactly. So, so when you look at, the, at, at what we call the wildlife economy, you have four basic pillars. Um, so you have non-consumptive utilization, which is tourism. And then the other three pillars are consumptive utilization. So, well, one falls in between the two. So you have trophy hunting, you have meat production, and then you have live game sales. Mm -hmm. So live game sale is basically, you're not consuming anything off of the animal, but yet you are relocating it to another area. So you are handling the animal. Um, and so 
what we've learned over the years is if you are going to be self-sustaining and 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 can and, and for a, um, a reserve to carry itself you need to have a part in all four of those pillars um you probably realized that over COVID. I mean, or probably reinforced that fact over COVID, right? Exactly. And and so you have a lot of amazing conservation areas and 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 reserves all over Africa that have a lot of outside funding coming in to keep them going. And one thing that we noticed over COVID is that a lot of that funding dried up because a lot of this funding would come from companies and big businesses, you know, using it as a tax write-off and putting money into that. And yet when you have the whole world shut down, you know, the first thing that companies cut on is money going out. Um, so you had a lot of reserves actually going through a very, very tough time because all their outside funding just dried up. Whereas because we are, we can sustain this whole area just with the money it generates by itself, we, of course, there was a lot of income that just dried up because no tur we didn't have any tourism or any hunting, yet we still had meat production. So we could still carry the whole place. We didn't have to retrench a single employee um, just because we at least had one of those four pillars to still stand on. Um, you know, and if we talk about the butchery, um, we, I think last time we spoke about it, we came out to about 36 tons of meat that goes through the butchery every year. It's yeah. a lot of protein that, that goes. And that replaces, and the, the amazing thing about that to me, and it's really important to reinforce this, and I got this from when I was uh, filming last time, I was flying with your mom up in the plane, and she was talking about what this place was like before it was the reserve. Yeah. And she was saying that there was like three or f maybe four species that were here and, and tiny numbers yeah. and employed a handful of people. Yeah. I, don't know how, I don't know how many people you employ now, but uh, I mean, I can count about 50 just going around the, around the place. Um, is that that meat production is both sympathetic to the habitat because it's from species that actually exist in this exactly. habitat but it's also sustainable because next year you can take the same amount off. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, and, and if you look, if you look at, a, at a method of protein production, so you know, typically when, when you look at protein production, you look at, at, at cattle, cows, sheep, goats, um, or then you know, crops like soybeans. But for, for either or all those ways of protein production, you are changing nature you know you you're either planting um, crops to feed cattle in feedlots or you're taking everything out and, and planting soybeans to make tofu but yet if we generate protein from wild animals that are adapted and and have evolved to naturally survive in this environment without you know destroying the environment um, where we don't have to plow everything to bits to generate protein. I mean, that is carbon neutral meat. Mm -hmm. That is carbon neutral. That, and you're keeping ecosystems in yeah, that. Yeah, the red meat off of a springbuck or any animal that's adapted to survive in this environment is more carbon neutral than any piece of tofu because it's not destroyed the, the habitat. There wasn't a bunch of uh, tractors plowing everything. There wasn't uh, herbicides or pesticides, you know, pumped into it. So we've kept the environment natural and yet we're generating protein off of it. Your giraffes here is quite 
a good case study of that, I think. And one that'll probably, probably be a little uncomfortable for people to hear, but also blow their minds. Tell me, tell me about that, because I mean, there's so many giraffe here. So we have roughly a thousand giraffe on our property. Um, and of course we need to manage those numbers. Otherwise, just like with the elephant, you know, they'll eat themselves out of their own they habitat. Just they just keep right? breeding, yeah. Because the giraffe don't really have any natural predators. Every now and then you'll have a lion or a leopard kill a young one, but that's nowhere near the numbers that you typically, or that you need to take out to, to you know, just to keep a, a stable population. Um, and of course, every year we look at live sales to try and sell giraffes live because that's the easiest way to take a large number of animals off. But everybody who has giraffe or wants giraffe already has giraffe. Mm -hmm. And because they don't have any natural predators, they just keep breeding. So they have the same problem you have. Yeah. So, to, so in, in most years, I might be able to sell, you know, six to 10 giraffe and nothing. nothing. And having a thousand giraffe on the property, we need to take down about 200 giraffe every year. And so the only other management method we have of that is to cull them and then to process the meat. Um, and you know, when people think of eating giraffe meat, they think, how can you? But it's actually very, very, very it's good very meat. Good. <laughs> uh, I can attest to this. <laughs> so, um, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's part of the cycle. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's, this is Southern giraffe. Yeah. I'm, I'm racking my brains here because I, re I think I remember CITES doing something really dumb a couple of years ago and they put all of the trade for all of the giraffe species of which almost all of the others are endangered in some way yeah. and most of those are not huntable as such. Uh, in the same, it's just giraffe It's now. just giraffe, it's all in the same category so they've become a CITES listed animal. Um, and. That's insane when <laughs> when there's so many because there's a lot of southern giraffe. Yeah, yeah, and and you know so so when getting back on this whole CITES thing, which things that don't make sense about CITES. So giraffe have been CITES listed, so it makes it harder for a trophy giraffe or the trophy somebody who hunts it as a trophy to export it to their home country, mm -hmm. and yet internally you know, you still have the same amount of giraffe being shot just yeah. to keep just populations to stable. So you're having revenue actually, the potential revenue taken yeah. unnecessarily exactly. because they, the hunter coming from whatever part of the world would be shooting a giraffe that one of your guys is just gonna shoot anyway yeah. to feed the photographic yeah, tourists. Exactly. And so while we're on this little CITES topic, the, 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 the strangest thing, is you can legally export a live rhino to China or Vietnam with CITES permits, all legal, but you're not allowed to export the horn. How does that work? So in the CITES um, appendix, it says the live rhino or a trophy rhino, you can get CITES permits for, but any specimen of the species is not allowed for export. So the, rhino, the horn classifies as a specimen of the species and not the whole animal. Okay. So between 2006 till now, about 150 live white rhino have been exported to China and Vietnam. The last group I think that went out, we'll have to double check, was either 2019 or 2021, 10 rhinos that went to Vietnam live. Why? What are they doing with them? Well, well I guess we maybe don't know. So 
Whenever CITES permit is issued, they, they need to designate what it's for. So it's either for, and there, there's a bunch of different designations. So usually you see a Z, which means zoo, or in this case, a lot of them have gone out under B, which means breeding. Huh. But what do you think they're doing to those rhino? Of course they're dehorning them. And I wonder if once they're in the country, because that's inside the country, that's they could just domestic, trade in it, yeah, domestic, domestic trade. trade. Well, I mean, you have the Golden Triangle in Vietnam, which you can go walk in today and find rhino horn anywhere. Um, so, so the domestic trade is live and well there. Hmm. So if you can import rhino to Vietnam, breed them, cut the horn and sell, why not? So that actually, I, I didn't know that. And that completely blows out the water, the argument that, we're, well, if you had a legal trade, how could you tell with the illegal stuff? But there's already an internal legal trade from animals that are being kept yeah. there. So that's a non-argument yeah. now. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Hmm. And that's what's, what makes this whole CITES thing such a, such a joke, because you can legally export a live rhino, and yet when we ask if we can legally export the horn, then everybody jumps up on their, on their seats and like, no, no, no. But yet it's legal to export the whole animal out of the continent that out it actually belongs in. Yeah. So why can't we keep the animals in their natural habitat on the continent that they belong on and just give the people who want the horn the horn? Alex, this is an incredible conversation and one that I'm, I'm sure has got a lot of people thinking. Um, I need to now think really hard. How can this story beyond putting this interview out get to a wider audience. So you did um, a podcast with, um, uh, what's his name again, um, Mayer about the uh, pangolins? Oh, uh, Francois, yeah. Francois, yeah. So the nice thing about CITES is that they have every single CITES permit ever issued is on a database which is publicly accessible. So you can go on CITES trade database and you can go look at all the CITES permits that have been In issued. And the scary part is knowing how endangered pangolins are mm -hmm. to see how much trade in pangolin scales there is with CITES permits that is fully legal. And they are, by all accounts, the most trafficked mammal in yeah. the world. And yet you can get CITES permits to legally trade in them. <laughs> Something doesn't work here. Oh, it doesn't make sense. I, mean, I, I was, I was, when Sarah Roberts was here, you know, we were, we were sitting in front of a screen going through and once you start on the CITES database you just go down a wormhole oh, you, just keep you, you just keep going and you check you know this species and that species and this and that and we were sitting there and we, we we ended up we of course we first went through all the rhinos and we ended up with pangolins and she turned to me and she's like what's the point of CITES and I'm like I don't know because you you have legal trade and all these endangered species to a certain extent but then if you want to try and change something that would make it better for the species everybody's against you I feel like I might have found my next documentary. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a long one. Well, Alex, we, we, should, I mean, we, we could carry on talking, and uh, it's very easy for you and I to do that. Uh, <laughs> but we have people arriving for this project, this, this rhino um, tracking project yeah. uh, this evening. So I suppose we're probably going to have to call it a day and go and open it because also the beer has run out. So that, <laughs> I mean, if, if that's, that's pretty much the only reason we need to stop the park because the beer has run out. So I think we should wrap this up here. 
Uh, thank you so much for your time once thank again. You for being here again. <laughs> I mean, I, I also don't need much of an excuse to come back to the continent of Africa, but particularly to your amazing place in Namibia. So thank you. And uh, I hope hopefully over the next, how much longer am I here? Another eight days? We're, we're going to have a lot of rhino on the ground. Yeah. Through, through darting and chipping. It's going to be an exciting, exciting and probably a little stressful, but it, uh, it always goes well in the end.